0: Uh, my name is Kevin Prusham, I'm a partner in the litigation group at Hale. Um, thank you for joining our program on remote proceedings. Uh, we have uh, a great set of panelists uh, for you, and I'm going to introduce them right now. Um, Rob Carroll is a partner in Goodwin's IP litigation group, and a member of the firm's antitrust litigation and business litigation practices. Felicia Ellsworth is my litigation partner at Hale. And Anita Spieth is a principal in Choate's IP Litigation Group. And if we go to slide two, we're going to start the webinar by running through some of the common platforms that are used in remote proceedings. The panelists will give their thoughts generally on how to present your best self in, in a remote setting. And then we'll walk through the specifics of depositions, mediations, and court proceedings. So, We're hopeful that it'd be a good program. There are a lot of you that are registered and are participating right now. Um, We look forward to taking your questions. Well, to start, I'm gonna turn it over to Felicia. Hi, everyone. Um, Thanks for joining. If we could go to slide three, please. There we go. Thanks so much. So we just wanted to lay out some of the common platforms that are being
1: used in these remote proceedings. Obviously, folks are are mostly familiar with these um, uh, since we've all been doing this for eight or nine weeks and and probably even before, but some different um, platforms that we've seen commonly used in different types of proceedings that we will endeavor to cover today, um, depositions, mediations, and court proceedings. So first on depositions, um, the platforms are really um, kind of whatever it is that you want to use, Um, any of the Zoom, WebEx, BlueJeans, Microsoft Teams, there may be others. Often it's dependent on whatever your firm or your client has uh, set up or has an arrangement with, Um, although there are some deposition vendors that have an integrated platform that they use, um, uh, particularly one in particular with the Zoom platform that's part of that deposition provider's platform. Um, We thought that it would be useful just to sort of point out some of the different options here and and how they may or may not work well with the different types of proceedings that we're gonna talk about today. So um, for mediations, again, it's primarily been Zoom, although um, some mediators have folks just set up whatever platform they wanna use. Um, I think it can be done by tellable on video that we all see. Um, on, On the deposition, Uh, platforms, there are um, at least one thing that that folks should think about as you're signing up a deposition vendor if they don't have an integrated platform is whether you're going to need to videotape the deposition and want to potentially play that at some sort of a trial or evidentiary proceeding. If you want to do that, you you want to think in advance about how technologically that will work. Um, You don't want the videotape to be the sort of Brady Brunch style Zoom screen. Um, You really want just the witness, obviously, in the same way that it would be if people were sitting uh, in the same room. So again, just sort of things to think about as you um, move forward to set up remote proceedings, um, looking like for the next several months at least. Um, On the court proceedings, The federal government has contracted with Zoom and most federal district courts, including DMAS, are conducting um, their hearings either by telephone or via Zoom with everybody joining remotely. Um, Other other state courts and other um, of the appeals courts, the federal appeals courts are also using Zoom and similar platforms for some video proceedings. Um, The mass state courts primarily are proceeding just uh, solely by telephone. Uh, The Superior Court, Land Court, the SJC has been holding its oral arguments by telephone. Um, I'm uh, I'm sure people have seen the news, the Supreme Court has been holding all its arguments by telephone. Uh, The Mass Appeals Court is actually using Zoom um, and they piloted that in April and are moving forward in May with with Zoom as the platform that they're using. So there's a lot of variability in what the different courts are doing and the types of technologies people will need to become comfortable with. Uh, And what we intend to talk about for the rest of the session is um, how to prepare yourself best for uh, for those proceedings. So let's go to slide four please. Okay so these are cribbed from the Tom Ford article that was in the New York Times about tips for setting the scene. Um, We all have been forced to get ready for our close-up so to speak uh, maybe a bit before we were ready. Um, So these have to do with what it's going to look like for the viewer um, or for the other the the person on the other side of the camera when they see you on video. Um, It seems a little bit silly but it really does make a difference. It can be very distracting to have Um, You know, a a Zoom call or a video conference with a court that's worthy of an SNL skit, right, if your camera's off to the side and you're never looking at it. So know where your camera is. Look right at your camera. It's if it's integrated in your laptop, it's the light that's right at the top of your screen. If you have a webcam, um, you know, talk to the camera, not to the screen. Place place your computer um, or the camera at or slightly above uh, eye level. Try and lift up your computer with books or place the webcam on top of a monitor. That makes for a better angle. Uh, make sure you're sitting far enough away from the computer and that the scene behind you is sensible Uh, we've all gotten used to seeing people's home offices um, and seeing their couches and all that and and that's fine if that's your setup just keep in mind what it is going to look like and again this may matter more for some proceedings than for others for a deposition when you're taking or defending and you're not really going to be on the screen that much um, and you're not going to be videotaped Uh, because it'll be the witness being videotaped. Maybe you care less than for a court proceeding or for a mediation when you're trying to project um, some sort of messaging. Keep keep in mind the lighting. The lighting should not be behind you where possible. Try and sit facing a window with a a light in front of you. Um, Don't wear distracting clothing. Uh, Think about the size of your room and the quality of your audio and the chair that you're sitting in, all these types of things that uh, news anchors and other people have to think about that we never have, uh, all of that sort of starts to matter a lot more now. And it it pays benefits to spend a little time thinking about how you're gonna look uh, and setting your scene up in a way that is conducive to the proceeding uh, going forward as professionally as possible and in the same way that hopefully it would have gone off if you were there in person. And finally at the end, you'll see this in actually all of our different um, tips. Uh, frequent breaks is, is the key here. It's harder to do these things all via screen as we've all learned by now. Um, it takes longer for the back and forth that normally would, um, would happen a little bit more quickly. It takes a bit more time. Uh, there are technology snafus. Just budget in more time for whatever it is that needs to be done than, than you otherwise would have. I think we can go on to the next slide and I'll just pause for a second and see if um, Anita or Rob have anything they wanna add on, on the two points that I've made. No,
0: nothing for me, thanks.
2: I'll, add, I'll just add a couple points um, to, to Felicia's summary of the platforms in the context of, of depositions. Um, I've taken and defended a few depositions using different platforms um, and I think it's it's a situation where you might be constrained by um, what your law firm has contracted with. And it's also worth noting that many court reporting services have contracted with um, service providers. So if you have a court reporting service that that you always use or that you have a relationship with, they may be offering um, a specific online deposition tool. Some of the common ones that that I think the, the panelists have seen are... Um, called Planet Depot, which is actually just a, an implementation of Zoom that has sort of Zoom Plus. Um, and another one that some court reporting services are, are marketing and recommending is called Live Litigation, which is a different kind of software. So I found that it's helpful to um, sort of talk to multiple people and see what you like. It's, it's likely that you can use whatever you're comfortable with um, and they have different um, options. I really like uh, real time just something I've gotten used to over the course of my career is using the real time. And um, live litigation, for example, provides the real time texts along with the deposition on your screen, whereas some of the other technologies don't. And I've I've done it both ways. You have to use what you have available to you, but take the time before you schedule one of these depositions to see, to see what the different platforms are offering. Um, and the, just like anything else, um, sort of pre-COVID, the more experience you get the easier this becomes and you can see what your style is and, and what features of the technology um, mesh best with your deposition taking and defending taking and defending style um, the tips that we're going to talk about today are sort of agnostic of the technology uh, but but again you could sort of shape these depending on what the offering what what offering you're using uh, the first point here on the slide says to to do a test run with the technology the day before the deposition. This is probably one of the biggest tips and most useful tips that we could talk about today. Uh, The way I've done it is if I'm defending a deposition, I actually make the technology run through a part of my prep. So I do the technology run through with with myself on the phone, with the witness on the phone. We both call into the technology together from our remote places and all the better if you can also um, ask one of your colleagues, an associate who's working with you, to also call in from wherever they're sitting. So you can try it with multiple faces on the screen, multiple people calling in. You can hear if you have feedback issues, we've all kind of heard those crazy microphone issues. If you can avoid doing that on the day of the deposition, all the better and get your witness comfortable with with what he or she will be looking at. When you're taking same same deal, familiarizing yourself with the features of the platform, how it will look, what's available to you, um, how will you mute yourself? How loud do you seem? Where should you look? it's all good idea to try it the day before. Of course, there's some technology issues that can be unavoidable, but but you know, to the extent you can get a feel for how it will look the day before, that's a good thing. Um, another sort of, I think, big question about taking depositions and, and a question that's come up in our firm a lot is how to deal with um, deposition exhibits. How do you deal with the documents? And I think there's, a handful of options that are available to you. The technologies that I've used have different features for, for using the exhibits electronically. Um, one way to do it, for example, is to circulate just prior to the deposition a Dropbox folder that everyone will have access to. I know Planet Depos promotes that, that feature as a way to mark exhibits, and they offer some preferred technology that you can use to mark the exhibits with a little deposition sticker as you use them. It doesn't update immediately, but it's not too clunky to use in a deposition. Um, So one one way of doing it is through a a shared Dropbox folder where everyone can look at the documents at the same time. A downside of that is that the minute you send that folder to opposing counsel, everyone's looking at what you're going to use as exhibits. You can update it live, so during breaks you could drop a few more documents in and sort of keep the documents that you're intending to use a, a secret until until you show them to the witness. You can also, um, some of the technologies have integrated ways to show exhibits. Again, it can be, there's some risk to it because if the document doesn't open or it's slow in loading, it can create some hiccups during during your deposition. But I I think as long as you explain what's happening on the record as it happens, um, you can cover yourself. Another, perhaps slightly more analog way to do it is to send physical copies of the exhibits, and that's something to consider for large documents that the file size might make them difficult to use, or if there's something in particular you want to point out handwriting in the document or something like that, it might be better to to do those special documents by sending um, paper files. For me, I'm just more comfortable using paper files, probably just creature of habit, I'm willing to try new things, but um, if it's possible to send paper files in advance, that works better for me. Um, You can, um, there's the concern that your opponent or the witness will look at the documents before the deposition, but one thing you can do is you can say, you know, I've sent you a sealed binder Um, on the record. You can watch them cut it and explain that they're cutting the binder for the first time and ask them on the record. Now you haven't opened this box before today, correct? Um, Whichever one of these methods you choose, you just need to get buy-in from from your opposing counsel that that's the method you're going to use ahead of time. I think doing online depositions does take a little more um, cooperation between the parties. So um, you know it's something to to consider is if you have a good relationship with opposing counsel, you might have more options available to you about, about reaching agreement on how you'll deal with them and paper might be easier to use in that circumstance. If you have a really antagonistic relationship with the counsel and you don't think it'll work to do it that way, you can just use the electronic way. It can, it, there's a few more question marks with it, but it can work just fine. Um, other, other things to sort of plan in advance and, and test the day before are figuring out a way to communicate with your own team members during the deposition. Again, some of these softwares have a built-in chat functionality, a lot like the Zoom chat functionality, which you guys probably are all familiar with by this point. I know live litigation has, um, has chat functionality that you can sort of break out groups. Just like Zoom, you can break out groups and have private chats. You can also just use your phone to text them or use email off to the side, but the best method is to have that strategy set out ahead of time so you kind of know where to look and you're not shuffling all around during the deposition. Same for creating a, a safe communication protocol with your witness. If, it's, if you're defending the deposition, you want to have a plan for how to talk to the witness outside the earshot of your opposing counsel. Um, of course, it depends on which jurisdiction you're in about whether or not the conversations you have with your witness during breaks are uh, privileged or not. So, So in Massachusetts, generally speaking, you can talk about anything with your witness. You may want to set up a side Zoom or a side, Um, Shared phone line or whatever else that you'll all dial into during breaks or alternatively um, You might just say just Don't dial in unless I tell you to dial in we want to talk about something So as long as you have a plan for all of that set up and what I like to do is I create one email that has all the shared zoom links the shared um, folders of exhibits and the shared um, Separate call-ins or breakout electronic breakout rooms is the way I think of it and I send that to the witness before the deposition begins so that they have it all in one place. Or if if I'm taking the deposition, I'll send it to my team so we have it all in one place ahead of time. If we can just advance to the next slide, please.
1: And while we're going to the next one, just on that safe sort of communication protocol, both with witnesses and with your, um, your team, you know, as Anita said that the functionality on a lot of these platforms lets you do it right on the platform and that does create some ease of um, operation because it's all the same screen. You don't have to toggle back and forth depending on what your setup is. There is of course the challenge that for most of these there's private chat and not private chat and you want to be sure that you're in the private chat if you're talking about um, you know, your strategy or different, different questions you're going to ask or what have you. So, you know, practice means perfect. Um, I'm sure there are examples of people sending a private message to everybody uh, and, and sort of waving privilege and doing all that. So, um, you know, just think about what your own technological savvy is, how comfortable you are, and how much you're gonna to wanna to be messing around with that uh, before you get into the actual kind of formative act.
3: I, I might jump in and add one or two thoughts on that. I mean, I, I think it's a matter of being conservative. Um, it might be advisable uh, not to be chatting with a witness in a written format, because you know, like everything else, that stuff sticks around forever. I, I will also say that uh, at least in some of these platforms, including sometimes Zoom, even private chats get sent to the host at the end of the call. Um, I heard that from a uh, clergy member uh, who was hosting uh, a, uh, a uh, Zoom um, online service. Um, and then received all of the uh, parishioner to parishioner chats at the end. So it, it's important to understand what what records you might be creating, right? Even if even if under the rules of your jurisdiction, you know those communications are um, privileged and can't be accessed. You know, uh, you may want to exercise discretion and, and go with the phone in any event.
0: Yeah, I would say that Anita's idea of having a separate uh, WebEx with your team is the way to go. I mean, in my view, you know, having, you know, at least two or three different devices running during this deposition is the way to go. One device that you're interacting with for the witness, a second device that you're looking at for your own documents if you don't have hard copy documents. And then a third device that is your communications with your team. There's just too many opportunities for error. Reply all type errors if you're trying to chat with your team using the same platform under which you're examining your witness. Sort
2: of to that point, um, I think there's an inclination to have a, a smaller group involved, just where you think, oh, you know, it's just me taking this deposition remotely, I'll just do it myself, but not a terrible idea to have kind of a second chair with you or someone who can help you manage the many devices that are running. Um, And also, you know, not forgetting that there's still training opportunities out there for our teams, so encouraging um, other people to sort of join you on these things, um, but also acknowledging that the more people you have, the more chance for for a a trip up, um, a technological trip up. So this slide that we're on now has has some of the more um, logistical, tips to keep in mind during your deposition um, you know ensuring that the video is high quality and that the, the person the, the witness's face is on actually like in the center of the screen um, something else to just think about is who the witness can see um, if if the witness for example can see you when you're defending the deposition and can also see the two associates who are with you at the deposition and can also see opposing counsel and can see Um, a court reporter type of person, it can be a lot for a witness to take in. So um, consider whether certain people can just dial in or can turn off their video if they're really not necessary um, and try that out kind of the day before. Same for when you're taking. It can be a lot to manage your documents that you have and asking questions over the screen and everything else. So if there's sort of other distractions on your screen that you can turn off, can you turn off your email for the day? Can you turn off your um, Skype for Business chat functionality for the day? Um, to try to sort of limit the other inputs that are coming onto your screen while, while you're doing it. Um, one, <laughs> one of the features of Zoom meetings that my kids are very into is virtual backgrounds. Um, I've had witnesses use virtual backgrounds just because when you think about what's typically displayed at, um, say you have a witness who's, whose testimony is admitted at trial, what's typically displayed is just a blank background behind their head, not their kitchen or whatever else. Um, depending on where they are, consider using it. I think in this day and age, we're all kind of accustomed to seeing whatever people have in the background, but if there's not a good place um, where they can take the deposition and have good, for example, a, a spot in the house where they have fast internet, um, you can always get just a very plain um, virtual background that's just you know cream or or gray or whatever it is, and and that's a possibility if there's just not a good option for the witness or for yourself. Um, other other tips on this slide um, say you know push pushing the laptop away from you. Sort of these same tips that Felicia referenced earlier that are you know just to keep your face in in full zoom and make sure your cameras are unobstructed. Um, and then some other sort of specific to, to using documents. I think the idea of asking the witness to identify what's in front of them with words so that the transcript reads more clearly um, is true anytime you're taking a deposition, whether it's live or by video, but even more so on, in the video context because it can confirm that they're looking at the same thing that you're looking at. And, and when you're over Zoom or over a, a video connection or the phone, there's just much more likelihood that you and the witness aren't looking at the same thing and you might miss that fact or you and the witness aren't talking about the same thing. And same for when you're defending, it's very difficult for you to make sure that your witness isn't misunderstanding something or reading from the wrong part of the document or whatever else. So more opportunities to to mention what's in front of the witness and, and consider having the witness actually hold up the document in front of the screen to show that they're on the same page that you're on can be helpful. If we can just advance to slide seven, please. So this slide mentions, you know, make the conditions of the deposition explicit. So just read it right onto the record. We're on video, these people are vis- visible on the video, plaintiff's counsel and defendant's counsel are visible on the video, the witness is visible on the video, um, and such and such person is joined, joined by telephone. Um, Having all of that stuff right in the record can make it easier down the road. Same for we've mailed the deposition exhibits to the witness ahead of time. Saying those things on the record are a good idea in case you ever need to explain that to the court. Um, Here's the tip that we said we would repeat all all day long, which is allowing for additional time. Um, Additional breaks, technological snafus, um, if you can split it over two days, sometimes that's a little easier where we don't have the concerns about the added expense of hotels and flights, Um, consider whether the parties will agree to split deposition over two days. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is more of a strategic point, which is I think we're all having these conversations because suddenly we're all working from home to accommodate the current COVID-19 crisis. But I think we should all be thinking about Online, depos- online depositions as or online proceedings as an opportunity. Um, other reasons we might be seeing them more commonly in the future is that now our clients are more accustomed to it and they see it can work and they might view it as a potential um, savings in expense, particularly for cases that have tons of depositions or class certification depositions that can be all over the country and all over the world or, um, you know, less less important witnesses where they don't wanna spend the money to send lawyers wherever and stay overnight in a hotel to do it. And also for, you know, for third party witnesses who um, perhaps are reluctant to appear, offering to do it by video deposition might be a way to um, extend an olive branch to a third party who doesn't have a dog in the fight and and is less likely to wanna appear. So I think even aside from the current political, uh, sort of social political climate, we should all be thinking about these as another tool in our in our litigation tool belts.
1: Yeah, I would I would echo what Anita said there. I mean, I think we're all learning and, and growing uh, as lawyers doing remote proceedings, sort of on the job. But um, it, it is the type of thing that I think you know I at least have more comfort with now than I did eight weeks ago. Clients do, courts do. Um, you know, mediators do. So there's, there's a, a real uh, opportunity, as Anita said, to, to take this and, and sort of make it a little bit more part of our practice going forward. That said, I also think that, that we are realizing that there are still certain tasks and um, functions that really do benefit from the in-person um, opportunity to interact, whether it's being in the same room as your witness or being in the same room as the individual that you're trying to depose or examine. Um, you know, there's the first Zoom trial, bench trial is going on right now in a case in Delaware. Um, so there's sort of at least the first one that I'm aware of. Um, so there's a lot I think of learning to be done here and, and probably we'll de- we will determine that many of these things can indeed be done remotely that we weren't be doing remotely before. And we may well also conclude that many of these things that we are now doing remotely because we have to, we really prefer to continue doing in person when we're able to.
0: I would just add um, to Felicia's point, these are, these. this is challenging. It's a challenging environment uh, to take a deposition, especially a cross-examination for a witness that you need to control, for a witness for whom you're trying to elicit um, useful admissions, especially expert depositions. It's extremely challenging to be able to control a witness in this environment, and you may have underappreciated the value of being in the same room and that physical presence, what it can do to a witness, especially a witness who is um, new to a deposition. On the flip side, there are also challenges defending a deposition, um, especially for witnesses who haven't done this before, for fact witnesses in particular. And so we want to convey to to everyone is to to not underestimate how challenging this is, to build in the additional time, both in your own preparation, but in preparing your witness. Um, Defending this um, um, can offer lots of opportunities. Uh, uh, Defending a deposition can offer lots of opportunities for a party, but there are a lot of pitfalls. And in order to take advantage of it, you need to prepare your witness the best way possible. And the only way to do that is to spend a sufficient amount of time getting your witness ready for the examination. Maybe we should move on to mediations. Unless anyone else has something to add? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to amplify one thing Anita
3: said, Kevin, and, and also uh, raise a, a question for the presenters. Um, uh, you know, To Anita's point about trying to come to an agreement with opposing counsel, how that's uh, on various things. Um, it, w- one thing that um, uh, folks within my work has come up is being clear on who will be where on the day of the deposition, particularly as we're working with witnesses and lawyers in different jurisdictions, and as restrictions lift in the country, um, you know, there's a possibility that you know certain lawyers will sort of plan on being there in person, um, and you, I think, you don't want to be surprised, particularly if you're the lawyer taking the deposition, and the defending lawyer shows up there in person with the witness. I think it's important to have an understanding of, of who will be where. Um, the, the other question I have is just a, anecdotally, you know, I, I think that remote proceedings, something I worry about a lot or think about a lot when, and I think we all do when we're defending witnesses, is witness fatigue. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of cues and body language that you pick up when you're defending a deposition, when a witness is getting frustrated or fatigued, um, I, I've actually not yet had the opportunity to defend a deposition via Zoom. I wondered if other folks had an, exp- uh, you know had experiences they can share about you know whether whether witness fatigue is um, exacerbated by the Zoom platform and and how you how you deal with that when you're not sitting there necessarily with your witness.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a great point, Rob. I'll I'll start, and then others should chime in. Um, I do think. It, I do think witness fatigue is exacerbated, not just by the platform, right? The staring at a screen is harder, particularly all day long, um, but also by our present circumstances, right? People are um, more stressed out. People are in their homes. They're trying to make sure things aren't loud and happening behind them, or maybe they're concerned about all of the other many things that they're to be concerned about right now. So we're, we're definitely seeing that as just sort of an emotional, um, you know, toll that that this, pandemic is taking on people and that, that carries through to your ability to, to sustain an eight hour on the record video. Uh, th- the way that I've handled it is not really by being able to pick up on particular cues, but instead by just, I mean, typically during a deposition when I'm defending, I will mandate a break every hour, whether the witness wants it or not. And I've just moved that time up to be more like 40 minutes. Um, and that's sort of just even if the witness doesn't think they need a break, as, as everybody probably knows, sometimes it's the time the witness doesn't think they need a break when they most do. So just sort of uh, jumping in and mandating more frequent breaks. And, and they're usually shorter, which is why, um, as Anita pointed out, it's good to have a plan for how you'll communicate during a break, if at all, so you don't spend a lot of time figuring out during
2: the break how you're going to connect with one another. Um, but
1: that that's at least one way in which in which I've handled it. Yeah.
2: And just to hop on that too, in the, in the position of defending, one thing I've done to try to deal with witness fatigue is breaking up the prep into um, several days rather than, I think, you know, for a regular witness, maybe one, one long day or one long day and a half a day. Um, instead, I've done, say, two two-hour calls and then two half days, um, you know, leaving extra time for the awkwardness of the um of the setup and also trying to kind of build up the stamina and say okay and tomorrow will be even longer than today felt so make sure you sleep tonight Um, but it's not a perfect solution and and i think you just have to be cognizant of it and cognizant of your opposing counsels um taking advantage of the same situation you know whether you're taking or defending it's tiring for the lawyers too and i think people tend to lose steam at the end of the day Someone from the, um, from one of the attendees asked a good question, which was, do court reporters have to follow new virtual notarization-like procedures and swearing in witnesses? Um, I have a, sort of an experience with that. Um, the parties just agreed on the phone that although the court reporter was in a different state from where the witnesses were, that everyone agreed that the notarization counted. And I think at least in federal court, that will probably pass. As long as the parties agree that the swearing in is valid, I don't think anyone could really get around it. But again, that's by agreement of the parties, and you have to do that ahead of time as well.
1: I had a similar experience where we, we did it by affirmation. I will say it was, it was a, a deposition we were taking, and it was a third party, and the witness's lawyer had not previewed with him that that was going to happen. The witness himself was also a lawyer, and so there was a little hiccup of the witness saying essentially like, I don't know if this is valid, but I promise to tell the truth. Um, So I think, you know, if if you're going to agree that and you're defending, make sure your witness knows that. If you're taking, um, maybe have your uh, opposing counsel confirm with their witness that that that's gonna happen as well. So nobody's caught uh, by surprise. Uh, There's another question in the the chat about remote depositions taking longer. Is there any experience with the federal seven hour limit? I don't personally have, any experience expanding that seven hour limit. Again, this is one of these things that I think um, can and hopefully should be dealt with by agreement. To Anita's earlier point, it depends uh, a bit on the nature of your relationship with your opposing counsel in a given case. Um, I will say that the aspects of the depositions in my experience that are taking longer tend not to be as much of the on the record time, but more time spent off the record fixing audio issues. So that's why it hasn't come up yet, Um, but I think you know, either by agreement of the parties or, or an appropriate motion, um, you know, to a court indicating that in my experience, I'm gonna need eight hours on the record here because of uh, the platform, uh, would be at least one way to handle that. But Anita or, or, or Rob may have uh, some personal experience here.
2: I don't have anything other than my depositions have actually been, I think, slightly shorter because of fatigue from the taking attorney.
0: Yeah, I don't have anything to add on that. All right, so maybe we should move into uh,
3: mediations. Uh, Great, thanks, Kevin. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, experience with remote mediations uh, uh, of which I've done one and I am preparing to do a second. So I've talked to some uh, mediators um, in a couple of contexts about it. Um, In a way, I think that remote mediations um, more than any witness work, uh, so uh, online depositions or remote bench trials with witness examinations, I think mediations kind of lend themselves a little bit more naturally to remote proceedings. um, In part because um, I think the experience of many mediators, uh, many counsel, many parties has been, look, you have an in-person mediation, and and the the mediator facilitated discussions um, often continue after that if you don't settle on the day of the mediation, and so it's a it's a format um, you know at least the shuttle diplomacy piece of the format is one that is familiar and I think feels natural to mediators, um, and so you know it, it is something that I think that um, is worth parties trying. Um, it's something that mediators, in my experience, have certainly been eager to try in order to keep mediations moving forward. And um, you know, they've been flexible. Uh, and I think there's a, you know, while, while something is lost by um, not being physically present in the same place, um, I do think it is something that um, you know, there's, a, there's a good degree of success in mediations in a remote format Um, Some of the themes are similar to what we talked about um, with respect to depositions. Um, You know, preparation and planning and prior communications are going to be key. Um, Talking with um, the opposing counsel and the mediator about technology options, large mediation firms like jams, like Judicate West, um, AAA, and others um, have adopted their sort of preferred technology options. I, w- I would say that Zoom is probably uh, the most frequently used one. Um, and the mediation firms themselves, um, you know, have a pretty good handle on the on the technology. Um, an important uh, part of the agreement, in which I had a mediator raise, um, and I, and I think larger mediation firms are on this is confirming that the recording function um, is disabled. Um, This is particularly important in the context of mediation because of course, um, the confidentiality rules around mediation, the inadmissibility rules around mediation, they're designed to create a situation in which there's candor. Um, And so I think it's important to establish an agreement that, you know, through technological means, but also through agreement that, you know, none of the, none of the discussions will be recorded. Um, You know, by and large, uh, when mediations are done by Zoom, um, you know, there is functionality where you can have a joint session, um, if you're going to have a joint session, but it is essentially as if you were working with a mediator doing shuttle diplomacy between conference rooms. Um, I think what most mediators are doing is um, they, uh, they establish separate Zoom conference rooms. You can establish a joint conference initially, um, and you know, we'll have a, a sort of party caucus on one side and then uh, you know, effectively knock on the door as they would in a conference room. Um, and give some notice that they're going to join the other side um, and shuttle back and forth in that way. Um, it's a low-tech solution, but um, uh, I've had a couple of mediators suggest that, you know, they just be texting with counsel and say, look, you know, I'm going to presumptively give you 10 minutes, but just text me when you're ready, um, and then I'll give you two more minutes to finish caucusing with your client. Um, and then I'll enter back into the Zoom conference room. Um, and uh, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's functionally equivalent to the knock on the door when the mediator, you know, is standing out in the hall. Um, this is a new experience um, for most clients. Uh, you know, even if you have in-house counsel or party representatives, Um, who have uh, participated in mediations previously. Um, I think it's unlikely that they've engaged in this experience. So I I think setting client expectations is important, um, particularly client expectations around, you know, look, this is going to be probably a whole day affair. Um, Something I've heard people express concern about is, and I think it's a real concern, is that, some of what is lost when you do a remote mediation is sort of either, either the benefit of all being kind of trapped in a conference room or in, in multiple conference rooms and the way that that focuses the mind um, and sort of can make it more likely that, you know, when everyone has come to one place and is focusing attention um, and uh, that, that, that creates a situation where settlement is more likely you know, put the other way, it, it, it diminishes the cost of sort of brinkman-like behavior, right, the cost of walking out of a negotiation, because here walking out of a negotiation is literally just hitting the leave meeting button. And so, you know, people may use that um, change tactically in different ways. I think it's helpful. Um, presumably, if you're doing voluntary mediation, you have a you have a decent relationship with opposing counsel, or at least you've come to a place where you all think mediation is worthwhile. You know, I think it's helpful to have at least an understanding that everyone is setting around setting aside an entire day or however much time you've you budgeted, um, and that that there will you know if you can have an understanding that there won't be such you know brinksmanship behavior. Um, I think that's helpful,
0: um, Daniel. If you could uh, advance to the next slide, that would be great. Um, doing a trial run,
3: sorry, that was on the previous slide. Um, I I found that many mediators and mediation firms are, they're new to this, so they are interested in practicing. Um, you know, they're also in selling mode, right? They, they have an interest in, in wanting to make sure their clients are comfortable. Um, and, uh, so they are willing to practice with you and, and your clients. And I would, um, encourage folks to take them up on that, um, just because the more practice, especially with client representatives who may not have experienced this before, um, the better off you are. Um, consider additional scripting of speaking roles. You know, um, it, I think it's generally good practice in, in mediations to have one representative um, speaking on behalf of each client side, once you, especially once you begin you know, certainly for a joint meeting, but once you begin the shuttle diplomacy, um, I think that having advanced understandings is even more important now because whether or not you have a separate channel of communication with your clients, um, it can be uh, more confusing and more difficult. um, And there's sort of less less body language that goes on in Zoom. Um, So having an understanding about sort of who will be jumping in With whom, you know, at what time, who will be speaking, um, what it is strategic to share with and reveal to a mediator, and what it is not. Uh, Making clients understand that, you know, mediators are not hired to be your advocate, right? Um, You are paying them to beat up on you and manipulate you and the other side equally, and that skilled ones will bring pressure to bear on both of you. um, And anything you can. Anything you say, Canon, will be used against you. The civil Miranda rule, um, I think, is particularly important in this context. Um, making a plan for client interaction uh, when the mediator is with opposing counsel. You know, uh, generally, I think that um, if you have this Zoom two conference room shuttle diplomacy sort of framework, I, I think it's fine, and, and there's an understanding that there's no recording. I think it's fine to sort of use your conference room as you would a your conference room with the mediator not present, um, as you would in a physical location. Um, uh, so sometimes, folks I know are discussing setting up a, a separate chat channel, you know, like a Skype chat channel or um, or uh, you know some other separate channel for communications uh, during. Uh, conferences with mediators or joint conferences, or even during your separate caucus time. um, I I actually, I think that that should be done carefully, right? Because it's a little bit hard in real time to do that effectively. It can be like, you know, it can be like your, you know, co-counsel handing you note after note after note in a hearing or something like that. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think it's probably fine to do that, but to condition with the idea that, Look, most of the preparation has to be done in the separate caucus discussions outside of the mediator's presence. Um, This point about creating a separate channel with the mediator during the mediation, this is the point I was making before about, you know, even if it's just texting, it's important to be able to communicate with the mediator um, just about the mechanical issue of when he or she will reemerge in your conference room. Um, And um, finally, and this was raised to me by a mediator, Um, You know, everybody needs to be reasonable. Um, Sometimes technology uh, issues arise, um, and I think it makes sense to reach an agreement in advance about, look, if you get access to someone else's communications or someone else's conference room, you're gonna disclose and, you know, act in good faith about that. Um, And planning for extra time, um, you know, this is a a theme throughout. I mean, one, one thing I will say, and this kind of goes with the extra time point, um, remote mediation is flexible in the sense that you can time shift, right? Like, if you if you really is going to be a caucus with the plaintiff's counsel for two hours, um, there's nothing that says that you actually have to sit on the phone for two hours. Um, and so, you know, while there is some benefit to all be being sitting in one place and how that focuses the mind, there's also some flexibility that comes with it. So... Let me, let me end there and, and let other um, presenters uh, weigh in or ask questions.
0: I was just gonna say, uh, so Rob, I think that that last point is, is a great point. And um, certainly, um, the point was made earlier that this new environment that we're living in um, and during COVID is presenting opportunities to familiarize ourselves and become expert in these Uh, remote proceedings. And this particular setting, I think mediations um, offers an opportunity for folks to explore mediations in a way they may not have had the opportunity to do so in typical litigation because of the uh, expense and the effort it takes to get everyone in one space. The flexibility of doing a remote proceeding, I think, can offer opportunities to potentially resolve a case sooner than you might otherwise uh, do so in the ordinary course of litigation. So the flexibility, I think, aspect of it is a good point. Uh, It could keep the cost of mediations down in a way that it could make it more appealing as an option to do maybe earlier than you would think of in the ordinary course. I, I think that's absolutely right, Kevin, and
3: I, you know, it's always dangerous to make any predictions, but I I, I think that remote mediation is, um, of of all of the things we're discussing, is something that may be, uh, ha- have a more enduring effect and be adopted
0: more broadly for that reason. Okay. Um, Should we check- move on to, go ahead, Kevin. I was just checking to see our Q&A, but, um, uh, let's 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 move on in the interest of time to 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 cover court proceedings, Felicia.
1: Yeah. So let me talk just a little bit at a high level about um, the remote court proceedings. So, uh, you know, you're sort of at the mercy of whatever technology the the court has available to it, right? And and as we previewed early on, with the federal courts, that's been primarily Zoom, some telephone, and with the state courts, it has been primarily telephone. Um, and so, to the extent that uh, an in-person hearing or at least the ability to see the judge's uh, reaction to the points that you're making is um, important and it typically is Um, those those who have some proceedings in the state courts may want to try and push them out a bit uh, if possible and and, you know it's up to the courts obviously as to how they're handling this. Um,
0: You know I think we
1: may see as and, and to Rob's point about how as different jurisdictions are opening up at different times and we may start to see more hybrid Type options um, where there are a few participants, maybe the judge and um, you know two arguing counsel and nobody else uh, who are present in person, and everybody else is participating remotely in a way that wouldn't have have typically taken place. You know, pre COVID, we may start to see a little bit more of that. And obviously, with criminal proceedings, there are real concerns to. Um, towards proceeding without the defendant actually being physically present. There are constitutional and other concerns implicated there. Um, So I think it remains to be seen how the remote court proceedings will continue to evolve as our um, reaction and adaptation to this situation evolves. But just some things to to think about, uh, again, echoing a lot of what we've already said, so I'll go through fairly quickly, um, since we're running short on time and do wanna answer questions. Um, you know, ensure the strength of your connection in advance, uh, internet or phone. Make sure you know where in the house um, or wherever it is that you're operating from you'll be uh, and that you have good either cell reception there, Wi-Fi, both, um, quiet location. I think the background matters even more for court proceedings than some of these other ones. So, you know, really think about that and test it out and, and make sure that you're happy with the way that you are presenting yourself um, uh, in, in a court proceeding. A tip that um, that we 've got here is uh, place a blanket over your desk to minimize the sound of paper sh- um, shuffling there' have been a few different articles about how some different advocates have handled remote and telephone proceedings um, uh, law 360 and done them and some others and some really interesting tips that people have about um, you know whether folks are standing up to give the argument or sitting down and how they 're arranging their papers if they have papers or their screens if they use screens. Um, you know, Do think about how you wanna organize your materials. I did one remote, uh, I did one telephone argument and I had all my materials on the computer. Um, turns out that didn't work as well for me as having them on paper does. So going forward, uh, I've, I've managed to get myself you know, printouts and binders, that's just the way that I work. Think about how you work best and, and don't think that you automatically will become you know, an excellent sort of online navigator just because you've been forced to work from home. Um, Identify a plan for receiving notes and tips from co-counsel, you know, to Rob's point about the endless notes being passed to a council table, um, you can get endless emails, jabbers, and texts. We've done this in different ways, um, but depending on how many people are involved, you you may wanna pick uh, a true second chair who's the only one who's allowed to contact you and have that person triage whatever suggestions and notes people may wanna pass just so you're not getting a barrage that you're trying to look at while also trying to address the judge. Um, most of the proceedings you can listen in advance. Um, you know, you can all the court proceedings for the most part are open to the public. The federal court, so you can get a what's called a courtroom seating option. Listen into the judge conducting another hearing, um, so you have a, a sort of sense of how the judge handles questions and, and how the advocates appear. Uh, the federal circuit uh, had some arguments last week that I listened into, and they have a very Um, organized as you might expect from the federal circuit kind of order of operations for how they do things there. So there are opportunities to listen in advance and know what to expect. Um, And then, you know, kind of a little joke at the end, uh, you know, mute yourself, figure out how to mute yourself, double mute yourself, check four times that you are in fact muted when you intend to be muted. Some, um, Some of the technology, for example, WebEx, if you call in through your phone you still need to mute yourself on the WebEx platform to actually be muted. Um, just make sure that you know that, uh, that you're not going to suffer the uh, the fate that somebody uh, who this slate article did some investigative journalism on and I commend it to you if you're interested in, in reading about it um, but that's you know that's a, a tip for any of these things but but obviously in a court proceeding uh, you want to to avoid the background noise to the fullest extent possible So with that let's see if we have any Q and a that haven't been resolved. Um, Happy to take others in the chat or in the Q&A function. We have just a few minutes left.
0: For those of you that have uh, argued, have you you noticed um, an approach that judges are taking to these proceedings that may be different uh, because of the fact that it's on the phone or or by Zoom? Um, Ask the question because I've had two hearings so far, and in both uh, situations, the judge allowed us to present our affirmative uh, argument, our script, for lack of a better word, before uh, asking questions. Uh, The judge didn't interrupt us uh, either side um, in the middle of our presentation. I'm just wondering if that's something that others on the panel have noticed.
1: Yeah, I had a similar experience, Kevin, um, where we, the the judge asked for, you know, say your piece and then I have some questions um, in in a way that that judge doesn't always do. Uh, I have also noticed, uh, you know, the Supreme Court again is the famous example where there now uh, questions are are metered out, uh, metered out by the Chief Justice and it's produced, I think, some very interesting results in terms of the participation of, of various other justices. Um, I have also noticed that the courts are uh, because you can 't see their kind of context clues, they seem a little more willing to cut people off and say you know i 'd like you to move on uh, because they can't you can 't read that they don 't care about that or that they 've you know heard what they need to hear on that so there 's a little more interrupting than there would normally be um, in the particularly the telephone proceedings that I participated in um, and then for the you know the, the other thing that that at least i 'm seeing more of is judges taking things on the papers because they don 't um, feel that the argument is going to add enough, whether it ever was going to, but certainly not, in through whatever remote means that, that they have available to them. Um, so we do see, I'm seeing a lot more courts taking things on the papers when they otherwise would have held what may have turned out to be a perfunctory uh, hearing.
3: I, if we have just one minute more, I see a question about uh, mediation, which I can take a shot at answering. Um, it's. Um, from a listener. If a settlement is reached at the mediation, how do you handle confirming the terms of the settlement and writing contemporaneously to avoid any misunderstandings before the mediation ends? Um, I know for in-person mediation, um, you know, some mediators have traditionally um, worked toward a term sheet where both parties would sign. Um, I my, my experience in sort of the, the pandemic period has been similar um, that And I think it's important to talk about it in advance, but that, you know, an ABLE mediator will say, okay, we're going to, we think we have um, an agreement in principle, you know, party A, write it up, exchange it, and then I'm going to get back
0: on the phone with counsel. Um, So that has been my experience, and I think it it works uh, equally well.
1: So one more question I see about um, in court hearings, have you noticed any changes in judges' behavior or any more questions? I think it really varies. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I've noticed any more questions. Um, I've definitely noticed, as I mentioned, more pointed kind of, you know, I'd like you to address this issue because that's what I'm really concerned about. Uh, but, you know, the judges that, that, that I've appeared in front of and that I've observed their proceedings uh, seem to have really quite smoothly moved into the remote world. um, And and it's really just making sure that you as an advocate have the best opportunity to present your case and and can try and be as persuasive as possible as opposed to the judges needing anything, um, you know, more from us.
0: Well, with that, I think we've we've reached our time. Um, Thank you, everyone, uh, for participating. And um, as noted, I think a bit earlier, the presentation and a recording will be available uh, in due time. I don't know when exactly, but shortly after today. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.